0: You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. Uh, as I mentioned before, uh, we're kicking off a new series that will be in between now uh, and Easter Sunday, uh, walking through this gospel and your Bible uh, Mark is going to be begin on, if I can find it, page 836, if you're using one of those black card cover Bibles. Uh, it's organized in our Bibles as the second of the four Gospels. It goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But actually, chronologically, uh, Mark is the first Gospel uh, that was written. So I'll do a little bit more background maybe in Mark today since we're kicking off this series and we'll be in it a while. So you can bear with me through a little bit of this. But the first question to kind of ask here is, well, what is a gospel? What is a gospel? What is that genre? Uh, It's part history. It's part biography. All centered on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. But it's also, more than just history and biography, it's also a proclamation and an invitation So Mark didn't write down this record of what Jesus did and what Jesus said uh, merely because he wanted to write a book and produce a piece of literature. Uh, He wrote it specifically so that people like you and me who would read it, who would hear it even years later, would believe Uh, that learning who Jesus is, learning what Jesus did, that many of us would be convinced of our own need to believe in and to follow Jesus the center of this book, and we won't get there for a number of weeks, but at the center of this book is a question that Jesus poses to his disciples. And the question is this, who do people say that I am? And then it even gets more personal. He says, who do you say that I am? And that really is a great summary of the purpose of this book that confronted with the person and the work of Jesus, every hearer, every reader of this book is made to answer the question, what will you now do with Jesus? What will you do with him? And so if we read this as mere history or mere biography, we will actually miss the main point that Mark is trying to make in his his writing. Mark, or John Mark, as he is sometimes known, uh, was not one of Jesus' original 12 apostles. Some of the other gospel writers, namely Matthew and John, were. But Mark spent a lot of time with apostles. He was the cousin of a man named Barnabas, who was a leader in the early church. You might recognize his name if you're familiar with the New Testament. Barnabas often teamed up with the Apostle Paul and traveled around the Mediterranean, planting churches and sharing the gospel all around the Mediterranean. Uh, Eventually, interestingly enough, Mark actually became the subject of a very intense disagreement between Barnabas and Paul. And it was so strong that Barnabas and Paul actually decided to split ways, to part ways because of John Mark. Uh, Years later, there was ultimately a lot of reconciliation. But after they parted ways, uh, Mark then went on to spend a ton of time with another apostle and one of the original 12, an apostle named Peter. And that really is how we have the Gospel of Mark. As an assistant, as a recorder, as a co-laborer of Peter's, Mark wrote down Peter's eyewitness account of Jesus. So so Mark wrote these words. This is a a letter that we have, a, a Gospel that we have from Mark, but it really is the Apostle Peter's testimony about the things that he saw with his own eyes, about the things that he heard with his own ears. Most likely, uh, Mark wrote this down in the mid-60s AD. And so Peter, the Apostle Peter, traveled to Rome, uh, took Mark along with him as his traveling companion, and then somewhere around the year 64, uh, Peter is martyred in Rome. He's killed for his faith in Jesus while he's in Rome. And after Peter is dead, Mark then realizes, well, somebody better write down the testimony of the Apostles. Uh, At this point, some of their letters had been written and had already been widely circulated around the Mediterranean. But at this point, no one had actually recorded the events of Jesus' life and his teachings in any kind of concise and orderly fashion. And if you think about that, really, why would they? Why would they? The eyewitnesses at this point in history were still alive, were still walking around telling everybody about what happened. It's kind of like if you had the option to read a book about the signing of the Declaration of Independence, or to talk to someone who was in the room where it happened, which one would you choose? You would, of course, choose to talk to the eyewitness who was, who was there. The problem, though, is that eyewitnesses get old and die, or they're martyred for their faith. And before they do, before they die, someone needs to write down their account, and that's really why we have the Gospel of Mark written from the perspective of Peter. So with that, I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love. Uh, This is the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, beginning in verse 1 and then reading through verse 20. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Lord, as your disciples will say not many days after this one, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And so we ask that this morning you would now help us to hear and to obey what you would say to us today. We pray this through Christ, our Lord, our Savior. Amen. So you'll hear this, hopefully, even today, right from the start. Uh, Mark is not a man who wastes any time. He writes at an incredibly fast pace. A lot of long sentences with the word and. You know, and this happened, and this happened, and this happened. He uses the word immediately, a lot. He uses that word 35 times, specifically in this book. And Mark omits a lot of details that other gospel writers include. Why does he do that? He is racing to get to the cross, to get to the death and then the resurrection of Jesus. These climactic moments that define the fullness of the fulfillment of who Jesus is and what he's come to do. So we could put it this way. Mark wants to give you and me the essential Jesus as fast as possible. He wants to give you and me the essential Jesus as fast as possible. And here in these first 20 verses, he bypasses, maybe you already noticed this, The background of Jesus' genealogy, his birth, there's no narrative about his birth or Mary or Joseph in this. Uh, His early years, he jumps right into the action. But as fast as he's going, he includes here an incredible amount of fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. John the Baptist and Jesus and Jesus' followers, all of them are fulfilling promises and prophecies that God has made long ago. And so with the remaining time that we have together this morning, we'll look at three things. The forerunner, the Father's beloved Son, who of course is Jesus, and then the first followers. And our pace will match the pace of Mark in this series. We will move quickly through the gospel. There's a trade-off, there's a trade-off there. We won't get to go into everything in detail, but you will hopefully, in our pace of going through this book, feel the pace of Mark more authentically it would be a little bit inauthentic to go slowly and take like multiple years to go through Mark. You'd kind of miss the speed and the flavor. It'd be like a tech company putting out their notice about their new device via fax machine, right? So because Mark moves fast, so will we. We'll go quickly through this book and even through the rest of our time this morning. So first, the forerunner, the forerunner. As Mark says here at the beginning, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And remember, Christ uh, is not his last name. We sometimes can think that because we see Jesus Christ together so much. Christ is his title. Uh, It means Messiah or anointed one. And for centuries, God has been promising to send a savior to rescue his people. As part of that, God also promised there would be a forerunner. There would be one who would prepare the way for this anointed one. Mark takes words here from the prophet Malachi and the prophet Isaiah, and in verses 2 and 3, he kind of smashes them together into one thing. God will send a messenger. He will be the voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And this, of course, finds its fulfillment in John the Baptist. Notice, though, also, Mark doesn't give a long explanation about all these prophecies. He just prefaces it saying, as it was written, and then says simply, John appeared. It's like those, those smoke bags that like, martial arts experts use to like, appear and disappear. They like, throw a smoke bag and they appear. John appeared, poof, out of nowhere. Luke actually gives us the whole backstory to John. It actually was God's revelation to John's father, a man named Zechariah, that broke this 400-year silence of God's authoritative word to his people. There's a lot of rich backstory to this, but Mark, hearing the eyewitness account from Peter, Peter, an apostle, hearing from Jesus, Jesus explaining how all the Old Testament law and prophets point to him, Mark is able to simply and succinctly just say, God promised it, and it happened. God promised, and it happened. It's amazing that he can say it so succinctly when there's so much rich backstory to it. From the wilderness, then, John is calling people to repent and to be baptized. And although that's not a completely new idea, John is doing something new with baptism. Because up to this point, only converts to the Jewish faith, only converts, people from not among the Israelites, who then came to worship the one true God, were baptized. But John here is calling all people, including his fellow Israelites, to repent and to be baptized. Why is he doing that? He's doing that because Israel needs a new start. They desperately need to be cleansed. They need to be made new again. And where John might help people seek this new beginning by repenting of their sins and being baptized, the one who is coming after him will actually bring the new beginning. Jesus will come baptizing not merely with water, but in fulfillment of a number of other Old Testament prophecies, baptizing with the Holy Spirit of God himself. And then incredibly, as this baton is passed from John to Jesus, Jesus himself is baptized. And so second, let's consider not only the forerunner, but the Father's beloved son, who of course is Jesus. Why is Jesus baptized? Have you ever stopped to like, think about that? Why is Jesus baptized? He's the only person who ever walked on the face of the earth who didn't need to be. He's without sin. Uh, he's done nothing to repent of, or he's done nothing that needs to be cleansed from. So why does he insist? And Matthew actually goes into a lot more detail than Mark does. John's like, really reluctant to baptize Jesus, understandably. He's like, who am I to baptize you? But Jesus insists, no, you must baptize me. Why does Jesus insist that he be baptized? There, I think, are a few answers, really important answers to that question. For one, this is Jesus identifying himself with the people he came to save. So though he is fully God, he is also fully human. In his incarnation, Jesus became flesh and blood, and he did that in order to save real flesh and blood people like you and me. He enters into our sinfulness, into the sinfulness and the brokenness of this world, and he humbles himself to become like us. And so he's baptized in identification with us. But in conjunction then with that act of ultimate humility, we also see an act of ultimate power here. The the heavens, it says, are torn open, torn open, And the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus, demonstrating this divine power that he's been given to carry out the work he's about to start. And the all-powerful creator of heaven and earth speaks these words of blessing and commissioning over Jesus. See, in Jesus, God is remaking the world. This scene very closely parallels the account of creation all the way back in Genesis 1. The Spirit of God hovering over the waters, the voice of God initiating and inaugurating something new and something good. But how is all of this good and recreating power of God manifested? I'm convinced that this is the other reason that Jesus is baptized. It's so that through God's own words over his beloved son, you and I might know the father heart of God, the heart of God as a good and perfect father. There is a tragic lack of faithful fatherhood, faithful parenthood in our time, in our nation, in our world. Some of that is due to tragedy, circumstances, some of it's due to choice, often it's a messy interplay of both of those things. And that's what creates the need for adoption in foster care, as we've already heard some about from Heidi this morning. But if we think even more broadly about that, even those of us who were blessed enough to have present and caring and loving parents have also been let down by them, have been sinned against by them in probably a number of ways. And each of us who are parents, each of us who become parents someday, will also let down and sin against our own kids. Sin is pervasive. It it affects everything about life in this world, and that absolutely includes family relationships. I don't think I'd have to convince any one of you that that's true. Does sin not affect our family relationships? And so we need something infinitely better than what we experience and than what we are able to offer ourselves in our own family relationships. What we see here at the beginning of Mark is that the God of heaven and earth is not only powerful enough to create and recreate the world, but that he loves enough to reveal himself as Father. First and foremost, Father of Jesus, who is the beloved Son, the only begotten Son, But as the kingdom of God continues to unfold, we find that this perfect fatherhood of God is held out to all who would come, to all who would believe. The apostle John writes in his gospel that to all who receive Jesus, God gives them the right to be called children of God, to call God our own father the unimaginable grace and love of that. And if you've been around the church for a number of years and you've lost your astonishment at that reality, then I pray you might regain it in the Gospel of Mark, that you get to call God your father, that in Jesus you get to be called the beloved son or daughter of God yourself. That's incredible. And there is, of course, massive baggage about this for some people, especially any of you who have experienced deep wounds from your own father or your own mother or both. But there is so much hope and redemption held out to you in the prospect of knowing God as your father, in being loved by God as father, in hearing God proclaim over Jesus, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Because when does God say this to Jesus? He says it before Jesus does anything. This would be incredible enough if God was proclaiming this over Jesus at like the the, the cross, or the resurrection, or the ascension. But his love for Jesus is so strong, so perfect, so pure, that he proclaims it at the start of his ministry, not the finish and invited into this perfect and intimate love, you and I then can have every confidence of hearing the same thing from God. Different, of course, because Jesus we are not, but because of Jesus and his work, we become beloved sons and daughters of God, not by our own performance, not at the end of our story, but when we begin to walk with him, solely because of the love with which he loves us. We too can hear God say, You, you are my beloved daughter. You are my beloved son. And in Jesus, with you, my favor is on you. With you, I am well pleased. If we would only believe that, if we would only believe that, it would heal our own father wounds. It would heal our own mother wounds. It would heal the wounds that we deal out as imperfect fathers and mothers to our own kids. And not lightly. I mean, not not as some kind of magic eraser that just just makes all those things go away like they didn't really happen. They did happen, and you'll be, be faced with the effects of that throughout the rest of your life. How will they be healed, though? They will be healed because it will offer you It will hold out to you. It will offer you what a sinful, flawed parent never could. You will be invited into the fatherhood of God himself, the only perfect father that ever was or is or will be. And this, of course, is ultimately why we care about fatherlessness in our own world today, about foster care and adoption. Not because we are perfect parents and we are the saviors of humanity, but because God is the perfect father. And by grace, we get to embody some of this good fatherhood of God in our own parental relationships, in our own loving care of children. We get to push back the darkness of what sin loves to destroy in family relationships. And imperfect as it may be, we get to offer people real and tangible glimpses of this perfect fatherhood of God. Before Jesus begins his ministry, after he's baptized, but before he begins his ministry, he's tested. And as he's tempted here by Satan, we see both, again, his humility and his power. He faces the same kind of temptation that we face, but unlike us, he withstands that temptation. And herein lies one aspect of the beauty and the worth of Jesus. He is able, because of his full humanity, He is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. His incarnation, his facing temptation and trial like this, means he knows our frame. He knows we are dust. But because he's perfect, he's not only able to sympathize with us, he's able to actually save us out of it. To rescue us from our slavery to sin that we do not always withstand as he did. We read here that both Jesus' baptism and temptation happen in the wilderness. And there's a ton of meaning to that that we can't get all the way into this morning. But when God creates Adam and Eve all the way back in Genesis 1, where are they made? Where do they live? In a garden. They have dominion over all of the animals. But then when they and humanity in them rebels against God and sins, they're banished from that garden, and all of God's created order is fractured and corrupted because of it. So when Jesus comes into the world, when he begins his ministry, he takes on the world in that condition. As a pastor named Sinclair Ferguson puts it, if Jesus is going to redeem the world, he needed to enter it, not as Adam found it, but as Adam left it. And Adam left it, a wilderness. He left it barren and broken, full of dangerous wild animals. There's even an allusion to wild animals here, randomly, in this text, but it's not so random. It's this, and from this wilderness then that Jesus will begin to make right the world that you and I corrupt by our sin. In Mark's gospel, we will see over and again that Jesus' ministry is one of both words and deeds. It's both of those things working together. It's not one over and against the other. It's the two of them together. But it begins here in verses 14 and 15 with words, with a proclamation Jesus says the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And he's saying here that a new era in history has begun. That the kingdom of God, the, the rule and reign of God is now near. It's now at hand. That God is about to once and for all accomplish the defeat of Satan, the defeat of sin, the defeat of death, and assure the victory for God and his people. Jesus begins his ministry proclaiming this very truth and it's an announcement that demands a very particular response. Thankfully, we're not left to guess what that response is because Jesus continues when he says the kingdom of God is at hand, he continues and says, repent and believe this good news. Repent and believe in this gospel. To repent means to reverse course. That means to turn away from darkness and turn toward light, to turn away from evil and toward good, to turn away from what God hates and to turn toward what God loves. It means we trade all of the devotion that we pledge to things that cannot possibly sustain us or satisfy us and that we instead pledge all of our devotion to the author of life and the author of our salvation who is our great God and King, Jesus Christ. To believe, these things go hand in hand, To believe means we not only know about Jesus and what he's done, but we agree with that. We trust in that. that We depend on Jesus as our only hope in life and death. And we express that faith, that trust, that we find our salvation in him alone. So when we hear that the kingdom of God is at hand, that God is now accomplishing the salvation of his people in the work and the person of Jesus, there are a lot of potential ways that we might respond to that intrigue, skepticism, even respect or appreciation. But any of these responses, though maybe good initial places to begin, any of these responses are not the one that Jesus calls for. Of the many ways we could respond, the one way we must respond is to repent and to believe in this good news of the gospel. And that is how we or anyone else ever begins this journey of becoming a follower of Jesus. And that's, of course, the next and the last thing that we see in these opening verses. So third and finally, the first followers. The first followers. It's less apparent than John's fulfillment or Jesus' fulfillments, but when, he, when Jesus calls these first followers fishers of men, This is likewise a fulfillment of something that God promised many centuries ago. In Jeremiah chapter 16, the prophet writes, Behold, this is God speaking, I am sending for many fishers, declares the Lord, and they shall catch them, meaning God's scattered and lost people throughout the earth. And God, through the prophet Jeremiah, goes on to say, For my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from me, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. In other words, God is coming after his people. He is pursuing them. And it's Jesus' work that will ultimately accomplish their rescue. But as people are then caught up into this great work of God, they get to become part of God's ongoing pursuit of others. So followers of Jesus will then be the ones to find and make more followers. Disciples of Jesus will be the ones to make more disciples. Over the coming weeks, we'll talk a lot about what that means, what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Mark's gospel will teach that this includes, at least, at a minimum, trusting him, confessing him, following his example, following his teachings, being shaped by our relationship with him, and being prepared to face the same kind of rejection that Jesus himself faced. We'll see all of that over these weeks in the gospel of Mark. But one thing to pick up on here as Jesus calls these first four followers. To follow Jesus means and requires us to mature, requires us to grow up. It doesn't always mean leaving the family business, leaving your vocation behind like it does for Simon and Andrew and James and John. They have a specific calling that they're given here. But in some way or another, Following Jesus will always mean stepping out from what is known and familiar and comfortable and into a life of obedience and danger and risk in that sense. And some of us here this morning, perhaps especially if you're a student or if you're a 20-something or maybe even a 30-something, you might really need to hear that today. That to follow Jesus will be a call to, as the Apostle Paul will put it in 1 Corinthians 13, to give up childish ways, to step into a life of responsibility and sacrifice, to step out from the safety and the relative comforts of being a child in your own parents' home, to being in a posture of receiving everything from your parents and stepping into a place where you are the one actually giving and offering and pouring your own life out. We'll hear more about that side of it in some weeks to come. But as we've heard some about fatherlessness today, notice also too here in, this, in this, these last four verses. Sons and daughters are meant to leave fathers and mothers. That's how it's supposed to work. Uh, not the other way around. Not the other way around. So James and John are the ones walking away from Zebedee. Zebedee is not the one walking away from them. There's incredible pain and when sons and daughters leave fathers and mothers. Uh, we don't ever get Zebedee's perspective on this, but as a dad, we can imagine no doubt how difficult it would have been for him to watch James and John walk away from him, to see their back as, he, as they walked away down the beach to follow Jesus into this new life. But these are growth pains. These pains are ultimately, though hard and though painful and sorrowful, these are good pains. When fathers and mothers, though, leave sons and daughters, be it by tragedy, be it by choice, be it by a combination of both, this is not a growth pain. This is the pain of sin and all of its effects. It's one of the most blatant reminders that things in this world, that things in this life are not the way they're meant to be. And so fathers and mothers in this room, I know there are many here, if this has not already happened for you in your life, Someday, you will see the back of your son or daughter walking away from you. And for all of our children, we pray desperately that that will be as they too choose to follow Jesus, like these four men are doing here. But even when that's the case, even in the best possible circumstances, there will be pain and there will be sorrow in that. I would plead with you this morning, be willing to pay the cost of that sorrow. Be willing to pay the cost of that sorrow. Don't, on the other hand, hold on to them so tightly that you don't let them take the the necessary steps of growing up that they need to take. And don't, on the other hand, be the one to walk away from them. Especially not in some kind of misguided, self-centered pursuit of your own quote-unquote calling. In quote-unquote following your own heart. If you're a parent, if you're a parent one of the clearest and highest callings that you have on your life is to lay it down for the good of your children. Not to chase some fantasy, to try to create your own significance. And far too many lives of young people have been ruined when misguided, selfish parents abandon them, either physically or just functionally. So let your children be the ones to leave you. Bear the pain of that sorrow. Do not be the ones to leave your children, even and especially in the name of following Jesus, even and especially in the name of following Jesus, bear the pains of growth rather than contribute to the pains and the effects of sin. And all of this, of course, in the end, and I expect many of us to be overwhelmed by this as we prepare to come to the table, all of this will serve to drive us back to Jesus' proclamation at the beginning of his ministry, that the kingdom of God is at hand. And praise God it is, because we need a recreated world. We need the perfect rule and reign of God to come to bear in this time, in this place. Thanks be to God that his kingdom, that, that his identity, that he is not only the creator, that he is not only the sovereign Lord of the universe, but that he is the good and perfect father who is well-pleased with his beloved son, Jesus, who through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus gives us the right to become beloved sons and daughters ourselves. So may we take Jesus at his word. May we see the Father heart of God and trust him. May we look to Jesus, the beloved son, and repent of our sin and believe the gospel because truly it is good news. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. We praise you, our Father, for our Father you are because of Jesus. We praise you, our Father, for making your divine truth real to us and for making it real to us even specifically in the commencement of Jesus' ministry, your words of proclamation over him that he is your beloved son and with him you are well pleased. We ask now, Father, that the way that we live and all that we do and especially the way that we pursue love for one another, might increasingly become a worthy response. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.